Over the last year and a half, in early 2013, we spent 14 weeks in a series called His Church, where we had our passion for the church, the bride of Christ, rekindled, or perhaps kindled for the very first time. From this series, we continued our teaching through the scriptures and spent 36 weeks in 1 Corinthians, where week after week, we saw the principles from the His Church series on display and practiced and affirmed in the Corinthian church. This then led to about six weeks of reviewing all of these affirmations through a a shorter church series called This Church. God has saved us out of darkness to be worshipers, to be a family, to be friends, together, servants, generous givers, to be holy, to be taken care of and protected by leaders, and to herald all of the good news of the gospel to others who haven't heard. As we've gone through such incredible studies of the church, studying the doctrine of the church, we've realized that it's of the utmost importance that our understanding of the church and the church itself is the most visible part of our Christian theology, and it is vitally connected with every other aspect Christ's work of the gospel is is the foundation of the church. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Christ's work continues in the church. The fullness of the mystery of God in redemption is disclosed among his people. Week after week through our series, we've seen redemptive indicatives that led to moral imperatives. In other words, as we saw the gospel, we saw that there were lives that were to be lived out in light of the good news. Mark Deaver writes, the church arises only from the gospel and a distorted church usually coincides with a distorted gospel. We show our understanding of the gospel by our involvement in a local church and it's a gross immaturity if we think that we can maintain growth in Christ apart from an involvement with the people in a local church. Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage and a martyr in the early church, may have well said that no one can have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. Calvin would later affirm this by saying, for there is no other way to enter into this life unless the mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at her breast, and lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance until putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels. John Stott, a man who passed away a couple years ago, was a preacher in Scotland. He said, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. Through our series, we looked at eight main principles and we focused on these things. And quickly, I want to review them before we move on with rolling out the direction that God is leading us. These eight principles began with us looking at the church as a whole, kind of defining the church, determining whose church it is. Uh, We understood that it is Jesus's church, that it is precious, that it is valuable, that it has a purpose for worshiping God and witnessing to the world. The culture that we live in, both in secular America and also within the American church, believes that the church is just an organization that it's man-made for the purpose of accumulating money, that it has no purpose or that it's overly authoritative, that hypocrites within the church ruin the rest of the church. One bad apple ruins the whole bunch. 
our selfish ideas, our, our selfish ambitions, our selfish ideology has a sinful nature that doesn't want to submit to anybody, that doesn't want to be intimately connected with other people. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, Peter told us that we were a chosen generation or a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people so that we could proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. We are this special people so that we can proclaim, which is witnessing, and also that we could praise, which is worship. Whose church is this? Jesus spoke a statement in Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter, chapter 16, verse 18, where he told Peter that I will build my church later on in the verse. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. This is the first mention in the New Testament of the church. And in that mentioning, Jesus says, it's my church. And he also says, I will build it. Now we know that the value of the object increases with direct proportion to the significance of the person who owns it. So when Jesus says it's mine, that shows us that there's incredible dignity in the church. And when he says, I build it, we see that we have an architecture over the church who is incredibly famed. He owns the church because he purchased it. Now, depending upon what currency you purchase something also shows its value. And we see in the scriptures that Jesus bought the church, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own precious blood that is so much better than gold or silver, which perishes time and time throughout the scripture, either Paul or Peter, Jesus himself, they say, you need to know that you were not bought with corruptible things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Or Paul tells the Corinthians, you were bought at a price. Or Paul tells the, uh, the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, that he purchased the church of God with his own blood. And I hope even just in hearing that, you will regard the church as important. It should be important to Christians because it's important to God. It's important to Jesus Christ. Christ founded the church. He purchased it with his blood. He intimately identifies himself with it, calling it his bride. The church is the body of Christ, the dwelling place of the spirit. It's the chief instrument of glorifying God to the world and in the world. The church is God's instrument in bringing the gospel to the nations. John Huss was a 15th century Bohemian reformer. And he said this, Every earthly pilgrim ought faithfully to love Jesus Christ, the Lord, the bridegroom of that church. And they also ought to love the church herself, his bride. You know, you could come up to me today and say, Rory, I love you, man. I'd say, thanks. And then you might say, but I hate your wife. That would not be good. Or you might come up to me and say, Rory, I love your face. You have a nice face but I hate your body. That would not be good. That would not be a compliment. It's the same thing as saying to Jesus, Jesus, I love you, but I hate your church because Jesus calls the church his bride. Or Jesus, I love you, I love you, but I hate your body because Jesus calls us his body made up of many members. 
What this begs and implies to us today, as we've gone through a series, we've looked at this probably four big times as a church. You could probably preach this better than I could. But what all of this begs and implies today is that we would have a care and a passion for his church just as he does. He's called us into this church, into a community that we would love and consider one another, that we would truly be our brother's keeper. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 25 preaches the gospel to us and then tells us that we need to have intentional thought and consideration towards one another in this community. Let's read the gospel part. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness, holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Man, that's the gospel, you guys, that Jesus has made a way for us to come into the holy place of Jesus Christ. And he made that way by his own flesh, by his crucifixion. But then it goes on to say, like in verse 24, this is, the, this is an imperative. This is something we must do in light of the gospel. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So this way that God has made for us into the Holy of Holies, we don't just go by ourselves. We go as a community. And you see that in the book of Revelation. We're not there by ourselves before the throne of God. We're there with the whole redeemed of every people throughout history. We see that there's to be a specific consideration of one another. We see there's to be a specific gathering together of a certain group of people. We're to consider one another in this community. We see that it's the responsibility of all Christians. We see that it's something that requires intentional thought and purpose, that we would calculate how we're going to do that as we come to church on Sunday. Man, you know what? I want to be prayerful. I want to be mindful of the people around me. I want to love on them. I want to pray for them. I want to encourage them if they're discouraged. I want to you know, correct them if there's sin. That is all part of this intentional deliberation considering that we have for one another. The gospel is what brings this motivation. It's at, the, it's at both bookends of this, of this statement because at the end of verse 25, we see that we are to have even more of this community, more and more as we see the day approaching. We've been created by a communal God. God has three persons within the Godhead, the, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It shows us there's there's community within the Godhead. God created us to walk in the garden with him and with each other. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 1 tells us that a man who would isolate himself seeks his own desires and rages against all wise judgment. God hasn't saved us to be a lone wolf out there. God hasn't saved us to be an individual or to be isolated just out there by ourselves somewhere. He saved us to be part of a community if we go out to just be by ourselves, it means I'm just going to be out there so that I can do what I want. And the Bible says, you know what? That's raging against all wise judgment. Jesus went to great lengths to reconcile us together as a people. In the gospel, we who were once afar off have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus. 
Out of the 110 times that the word church is used in the New Testament, 90 of them are used in clear reference to a local congregation. Most of the New Testament books were written to local congregations. Three of the others were written to individuals who'd been given specific leadership over specific local churches. Historical record, as we went through last week, a survey of the book of Acts clearly sets forth the establishment of local churches. And within those, we're to consider one another. One another. We see that in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to hop through the chapter very quickly. Colossians 3, 1 through 5 tells us, and this is the gospel, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That is the good news of the gospel. But then verse 5 begins by saying, Therefore, in light of the gospel, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. As you jump down to verse 8, we see that this becomes even more a communal issue. It goes from the the issues of our personal heart and then goes into the issues of community that God saved us into because of the gospel. Verse 8 tells us, But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Therefore, verse 12, you hop down, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. All of these things that spring forth from the gospel, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If you've got a complaint, forgive them because Jesus forgave you. Above all these things, put on love. It's the bond of perfection. These things show us that we've been saved into a community. I don't have to forgive anybody if I just am by myself all the time. I don't have to bear with anybody if I'm just by myself all the time. I don't have to be merciful. I don't have to be humble and meek to other people if I'm just by myself all the time. All throughout the New Testament, there are metaphors that are given of the church that show plurality of people involved. We're called the flock. A flock is not just one sheep. I don't know what you call just one sheep, but it's not a flock. Jesus calls us the flock and tells us that he is the shepherd. We are called a body with many members. We're one body with many members individually. And Jesus Christ is the head of that body. Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches. Not branch. I am the vine and there was one branch of all eternity. Jesus tells us that we're part of a family. Peter tells us we're part of a family. Paul tells us we're part of a family. Brothers and sisters that we're a people, Paul, uh, Peter told us in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're told that we're the bride of Christ. And in Revelation chapter 19, when you see the marriage supper of the Lamb, you see that the bride of Christ isn't one bride, it's uh, isn't one person, it's one bride made up of many people. And she has prepared herself for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Peter tells us that we are a temple made up of living stones. And Charles Jefferson wrote that the living stones have not abiding life unless built into the walls of a growing temple. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, after just this incredible three chapters of, uh, of the gospel being preached, we're told in chapter, uh, 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 chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 18, that we're not to be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but we are to be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on for the rest of the book to show us what being filled with the Spirit looks like. He says, if you're filled with the spirit, essentially, you will be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord Jesus, uh, to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God, the father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're filled with the spirit, verse 21 says that you'll be submitting to one another in the fear of God. And then he goes on to show that wives will voluntarily submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, if they are filled with the Spirit, they will love their wives. Children will obey their parents. Fathers will not provoke their children to wrath, but they will train them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Employers, employ, employers will not treat their employees cruelly, but kindly. And employees will serve their employers faithfully. The culture that we live in doesn't believe that to submit to one another has life. The culture that we're living in tells us to only love those who love you, only love those who are related to you by blood, only love the lovely or those who have everything in common with you. But the gospel has saved us into a community that has many different types of people, many different backgrounds, many different interests. We ourselves rage against community as we believe that Christianity is all about me. One of the elders was kind of sharing his testimony with the other elders, and he just said, man, there was just a long time where I was so focused on just, it's just me and the Lord, me and the Lord, me and the Lord, that I missed out on all the opportunities that God had for me to just love on my brothers and be there for my brothers and to be a part of this community that he has saved me into. We've heard from people as they leave the church, I'm just going to go and just focus on my relationship with Jesus. It's just me and him. Or we've heard that I'm just part of the universal church and there's no necessity to commit to a local body. But 1 Corinthians 16, 2 tells us that the local body is an exact expression of the universal church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred just about a month before the World War II ended, he was martyred by the Nazis. In his book, Life Together, he talks about the glory and the privilege of knowing other Christians. And he says, therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians, praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, it is grace, grace, nothing but grace that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers. What does such an idea of community from the scripture beg and imply? That there ought to be a regular togetherness with a distinct, defined group of believers. That leads us to that next point of Hebrews chapter 10, that we are to regularly gather together. Mark Deaver writes that from the earliest of times, local Christian churches were congregations of specific, identifiable people. God has always intended for a sharp, bright line to distinguish those who trust in him from those who do not. The lives of Christians together display visibly the gospel they proclaim audibly. 
from a historical argument, John Calvin writes that the Lord esteems the communion of his church so highly that he counts as traitor and apostate from Christianity anyone who arrogantly leaves any Christian society provided it cherishes the true ministry of word and sacraments. And so that's why Hebrews tells us that we ought to consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling or the gathering of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The regular gathering together of the church is, is hated. The idea is, is warred against by our culture and, and even that regular gathering is warred against by uh, the American church. Our culture says that regular gathering is too much. You need time for yourself. One of our elders was telling about how his own family has told him, you know what? You sure seem to go to church a lot, perhaps too much. You need to have a hobby or a life or recreation. Our culture, of course, says, oh, we only go on special occasions. Recently, a Facebook post of a friend said, hey, I'm just so excited to stay home today and watch the TV preacher or to watch a, a, a sermon stream online. Often in our own hearts, our evaluation about whether we go and fellowship or not is, does it fit with the rest of the schedule of my life? Or what am I going to get out of it? Or I have to go to church rather than, man, I get to. Look what Jesus has saved us to. When my commitment level is all in unconditionally to Jesus, I need this time. I need this time with you. This is where I'm encouraged, I'm filled, and I'm equipped. It's a resting place for us soldiers who are in the battle. It's like going back behind the lines and being able to, to rest and be able to have a break and be encouraged. Last week, we scanned the entire book of Acts, chapters 1 through 28, and we remember reading that the early church continued steadfastly, steadfastly, and very important things of which, in, which, continued, which consisted of fellowship, being in house to house together, regularly gathering. Historically, we see this was always the case of the early church. The non-Christian Roman official Pliny wrote to the emperor Trojan about the year 112, and he referred to the fact that Christians met regularly before daybreak on an appointed day. The Didache, which is an early second century document, exhorted Christians on the Lord's day, assemble. Justin Martyr, writing in the middle of the second century, described a common assembly on the first day of each week in which Christians came together for reading, scripture, preaching, prayer, and collecting an offering. Hippolytus in the early third century referred to God's people assembling each Lord's day. Erickson's theology book writes, Christianity is a corporate matter and the Christian life can be fully realized only in relationship to others. The most fundamental duty Christians have in relationship to the congregation is the duty regularly to attend gatherings of the congregation. As we looked at last week in Acts chapter 2, we see that, that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And John Stott writes in his book, The Living Church, he didn't add them to the church without saving them, nor did he save them without adding them to the church. Salvation and church membership went together, and they still do. John Piper writes, There must be a regular assembling, 
A group of people who only come together once a year could not rightly be called a local church because there are essential activities of the church which lose their meaning when not done corporately. So kind of moving along on, the, on this track, as we're gathered together, we see there's to be a use and a stewardship of our spiritual gifts. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We've learned through our series that if you're a born-again Christian, that God has given you at least one spiritual gift. It's called a manifestation of the Spirit. And He wants you to know what it is so that you can be used to build up and edify the church and to encourage others and to display Christ to this world. Paul told, Paul told the Corinthians, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to ignore spiritual gifts. The manifestation of the Spirit has been given to each one for the profit of all. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 through 16 really encompasses almost every part of these eight parts that we've looked through during the church series uh, it's actually uh, Ephesians 4, 11 is all start. I don't have 11 in my notes here, but it says that. Uh, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So the leaders of the church have been given so that there could be equipping so that everybody can have their part and do the work of the ministry. And that ministry will continue until we all come to the unity of the faith. We would become perfect men and women. We will, we will attain to the stature of the fullness of Christ, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We will become sound doctrinally within the church and not be like children who are tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. We'll speak the truth and love to one another. We'll grow up together into the head, Christ Jesus. And each one of us is part of the body, joined and knit together with ligaments and sinews. Then every joint, every part, every member does its share. Everybody supplies. And everybody is a part of this building of the rest of the body up in love. The body functions effectively by each part doing its share. One of the studies of the use, the stewardship of our spiritual gifts and the stewardship of our resources shows that within a survey about, uh, there's what's called the 80-20 percentage, that 20% of the church is actively using their gifts and building up the body and serving. They're also actively using their resources. They're benevolent with their finances. They're generous with their time. And the other 80% are simply sitting on the sidelines, uninvolved, maybe watching, perhaps even critical of the other 20% that are doing all the work and doing all the resources. That's something that the Lord has just been doing in our church to move us out of that percentage bracket. I don't believe that we're there at all. I think that we're 
that the Lord has, has done an incredible work here. Um, but the culture that we live when it comes to stewardship of our gifts, it always comes back to uh, self uh, and, and isolation versus uh, being saved for the advancement of the kingdom of God and the encouragement and building up of the church. Our culture that we live in tells us that this life is about you. This life is about you. Our own hearts tells us, you know, I don't need to know my spiritual gift or I'm too afraid to find it out. I'm ignorant of spiritual gifts. I'm not even going to look into it and there's no way I'm going to use it. What this begs, as the scriptures teach us, that there needs to be a stewardship of our gifts. It goes right along with the stewardship of the resources and the benevolent giving. One man wrote that all Christian ethics is gratitude. What I do with my time and my money and my resources, it's a response of thanksgiving to the grace of God. We studied that on Wednesday night as we went through Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. And we learn that how we handle money and possessions is often the barometer of how we trust and treasure Christ. But our culture tells us, hey, that money or that resource or that time, it's yours. You've earned it. Create storehouses. And if you don't store it all up for yourself, you're foolish. But Jesus actually speaks against that. In Luke chapter 12, he says, if you're just living for yourself and storing it up for yourself, and not being rich towards God, you're a fool. And as he speaks the parable, he says, your soul will be required of you. We think our resources are to benefit me and build up my kingdom and give me comfort and luxury and to make my name great in this world. In the scriptures, we see people giving according to their ability and beyond their ability, they are freely willing we see them giving with thanksgiving to the greatest giver of all in response to the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. We see their giving as a result of the Spirit working in their lives. In Acts chapter 4, in Acts chapter 2, and Acts chapter 4, we saw it at the early church stage. Generous givers coming and laying all of their resources down at the leader's feet who would distribute to anyone who had need. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we saw a collection for the needs of brothers and sisters would be brought and set aside on the first day of the week. They would be brought to the location of the local gathering of the local church so that they could be distributed as needed. And so what the stewardship, as we've studied, of our spiritual gifts and our resources begs and implies is that there needs to be some kind of knowledge of who those spiritual leaders are who, who are to be trusted to receive these generous gifts, that they might faithfully steward them and distribute them. And then in the distribution of them, there needs to be a distinction of who is to receive the funds. And Galatians says it's especially to be to those who are of the household of faith. Those who are using their gifts in the church need to know where those gifts are to be used. And as 1 Corinthians tells us, there's order and structure into how those gifts are to be used within the local church. So where are those gifts to be used? Gene uh, Wetz writes, it is by divine design that local churches provide the primary context in which Christians are to use their material possessions to further the work of God's kingdom. Any view then of how Christians should use their material possessions must focus first and foremost on local churches. 
This is what we see in the Bible. To bypass this important concept in scripture is in essence to ignore what is recorded by gifted men inspired by the Holy Spirit. We also saw that qualified leadership is laid out in the local church, that Jesus would continue the gospel in his shepherding role by using qualified men called pastors, elders, shepherds, bishops, overseers, men of character and function. They are a marked, distinct group of recognized men within the church. And a church was actually lacking if it didn't have pastors. First Peter chapter five, verses one through five is an incredible exhortation for pastors to shepherd the flock that is among them, to serve as overseers. We've learned that that gives a pastor a specific role that he's accountable for and how he tends and feeds and protects and cares for and lays his life down for the flock. We see that he's accountable to the chief shepherd. We see the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Paul called for the elders of the church. There was some distinct group of guys that he called out of Ephesus. And then he said, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers of a specific group. And they were to shepherd that flock that was purchased with his blood. They were to protect doctrine as savage wolves were gonna come among them and deceive not only did the shepherds have a specific distinct group that they were accountable to watch over and tend and feed and protect and teach, but those that were being tended and taught and protected were accountable to be in voluntary submission to those leaders. In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 12, very strong exhortation to a church in Thessalonica, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. These words like over you and admonish you, there's a sign of definitive and authoritative leadership. Peter tells us that's, that's not a dictatorial leadership. That's not ruling with a rod of iron. But Peter tells those shepherds that you are to lay your life down in service leadership. You are to lead by example. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, Timothy is told, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Hebrews 13, 17 tells the Hebrew believers, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. And so we see that the, those who are in leadership, they are going to give an account before the Lord. That is something that leaders tremble at the thought of, that one day they'll stand before Jesus and give an account for how they shepherded a certain flock. And so who does the flock know they're supposed to obey? Is it everybody? Is it the TV preacher that talks to them through the TV waves? Is it a pastor down the street at this church or down the street at this church? Who are you guys to obey and be submissive to? And who are the leaders supposed to lay their lives down for? Who are we accountable for? Am I accountable for the guy at First Baptist or the guy at the community church? Or the, like, is there, we need distinct lines our culture rebels against any idea that we think that submission is wrong and that it's degrading, but we forget that Jesus himself was submissive. He voluntarily submitted himself to the Father, even though he was of equal value and worth. We forget that we obey and submit to our doctors 
and our governing authority and our teachers, those that the Lord has put over us. Our self wars against the idea of being led because how often I fall into this, I'm a self-led man. I'm a self-made man. I don't need anybody to lead me. I answer to myself and nobody else. And so what does the idea of leadership within the church beg and imply? It begs for a defined local body with defined local leadership so that the leaders can know who they are to tend and teach and serve because they will give an account to the chief shepherd in regard to those sheep. The individuals of that church need to know who their leaders are so that they know who they are being led by and whose leadership they are voluntarily submitting to. Church discipleship includes church discipline. After all, discipline is the root word within discipleship. Hebrews 3.12 tells us that, that this discipline and this discipleship, it happens on a small scale and, and, and it can go, if unrepented of, if sin is unrepented, it can go to a large scale, but most often discipline incur, occurs informally and privately, just living life together, speaking truth to each other. A brother or a sister in Christ sins and another brother and sister with love quietly addresses the matter. We see that in Hebrews 3.12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Discipleship and discipline exist because people, including Christians, are prone to self-deception. The book of Hebrews is all about that. Don't be deceived. We often use the phrase around here, that in our discipleship, we check one another's blind spots. We speak things and exhort each other in ways that maybe we haven't seen it that way if we were just to go by our own objections. The book of Hebrews tells us that discipline is a very loving thing. And all throughout chapter 12, the word son is used to describe church discipline. That the father loves his son, so he disciplines him. It's because of love. that It's not pleasant. It never seems pleasant. But afterwards, it yields peaceable fruits of righteousness. Being loved shows that, uh, being disciplined shows that you are loved and that you are not illegitimate, that you are in fact a son. And so that we can partake, be partakers one, with one another in holiness. And yet our culture regularly tells us that any form of discipline is unloving, it's judgmental, judge not, don't judge me, that discipline is only unpleasant, or we think that discipline is only excommunication. Oh yeah, that church, they do church discipline, so they just boot people out of the church all the time. That is not church discipline. Church discipline starts very small, loving, and 90% of the time, just we're just, oh man, I received that encouragement into my life. I received that exhortation. Guys, believe it or not, I get corrected all the time. All the time. A couple weeks ago, you know, all the time. Probably since then, I could probably tell you a couple of times. You know, my wife corrects me. We correct each other, right? I, I receive from some of you corrections. That's okay. That's discipleship is discipline. Discipline is discipleship. And yet, self-wars against this, saying, I don't need or want accountability. I'm a grown-up. I can make my own decisions. I'm the most objective person in this situation. I'll comment on a blog about a false teacher. 
writes, only God is omnipotent. Only God can judge. Religion is a personal relationship between God and an individual. No one has the right to speak for God. Don't we each have the power to heal within ourselves, be it through prayer or faith? We get all power from God, but it still is within ourselves that we need to look. The presence of God dwells within each of us, so why shouldn't we look within ourselves? This individual needs to look at the whole scope of Scripture, that God has not saved us to be by ourselves, correcting ourselves on our own little island that we live on for ourselves, but we're to be with each other, sharpening one another, smoothing off the rough edges. Discipline is loving. Discipline is an everyday short account with one another. Discipline is discipling. Discipline also happens on a broad level if a brother or sister is unrepentant. All this idea of discipline begs and implies that there must be a specified, defined local church body that is the primary source for church discipline. On the small discipleship fronts of exhorting one another daily by being together daily all the way to a final correction of an unrepentant brother or sister. In Matthew chapter 13, in that first mention of the church ever in the New Testament, Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter as one of the first church leaders. When the church is told of an unrepenting brother in Matthew chapter 18 and he doesn't hear for their plea of repentance... Jesus is there in the midst of the church and something powerful happens in the heavens regarding a binding or a loosing of this brother. The Corinthians kind of help explain that a little more as there's an example of an unrepentant brother who was immoral with his father's wife and the church was to turn this brother over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul might be saved. And they were to do that at their next church gathering. We have understood this to mean that within the local body context, we are able to affirm a person's salvation based upon the fruits of the spirit and holiness in an individual's life. But if they continue on in unrepentant sin, we go through the process of discipline eventually towards a very holy, somber moment in turning an individual over to Satan by their own choosing. We are no longer able to affirm this person's salvation by the sinful lifestyle he's living. But good news is, in the second letter to the Corinthians, we see that Paul had been testing the church the whole time to see if they'd be obedient in even the hard things like church discipline. And that this individual had repented that such correction was fitting for such a sin and for such a man. And now they were to love on this guy since he'd repented. They were to bring him back and affirm their love lest he be overcome with too much sorrow. I'll agree that there are abuses in church leadership. And if you've been in the church long, you've probably seen it. And I'll agree that there are abuses in church discipline. And if you've been around very long, you've probably seen it. But misuse does not take away proper use. Misuse does not negate the other clear examples, descriptions, commands, and implications from Scripture. Finally, just two weeks ago, we looked at how the church has been given a mission and a commission as a local body. Charles Jefferson writes, when love is kindled in the hearts of church members for one another, it is a fire that burns its way to the end of the world. James Montgomery Boyce writes, it is though the church is a stage upon which God has been presenting the great drama of redemption, a true life pageant in which it is shown how those who've rebelled against, rebelled, 
rebelled against God and wrecked his universe are now being brought back into harmony with him, becoming agents of renewing and healing instead. When we surveyed the book of Acts last week, we read from a professor Bohr who wrote, Acts is governed by one dominant, overriding, and all-controlling motif. This motif is the expansion of the faith through missionary witness and the power of the Spirit. Restlessly, the Spirit drives the church to witness, and continually churches rise out of the witness. The church is a missionary church. Jesus is the model of missions. He says, as the Father has sent me, I now send you. Or as you have sent me into the world, I also send them. And then he did that in the commission. He said, go, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them the things that I've taught you, baptize them. I'm with you, even to the ends of the earth. John Stott says, no self-centered, self-contained church absorbed in its own parochial affairs can claim to have been filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit So a spirit-filled church will be a missionary church. What does this beg and imply? A specific spirit-filled church that is training up specific disciples and sending out these disciples to go and to make disciples of all nations. Paul tells Timothy, it's training faithful men who will train faithful men who will train faithful men. That was a simple short review of the last year and a half of two different church series and 36 weeks in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so as the chief shepherd, Jesus has faithfully led his church at Calvary Chapel of Crook County since her birth in 2002. He has provided facilities for us when we needed them. And when Pastor Ryan felt led to leave uh, Prineville to Fort Collins, the Lord was faithful to bring a replacement lead pastor in 2009. He has actively directed what midweek services, home groups, and discipleship programs would look like. He's brought faithful elders to be under shepherds to tend his flock. He's led us book by book through the scriptures and toward specific series whenever he would desire. For five years, the Pulse prayer meeting has interceded that God would make our church a praying church. Now we are seeing large numbers come out to the midweek gathering to labor in prayer for our church, for our city, for our world. We have fasted and prayed that God would change the missions climate in our church and cause us to be ascending church. Within the last five months, the Holy Spirit has changed us to be just that. We've already in five months seen a man sent out to Uganda, Africa, a husband and a wife sent to unreached Muslims in Senegal. We pray twice a week corporately as a church for the nations and the persecuting countries that they might know God and his way of salvation, that they might praise him and be glad and enjoy him and fear him, finding him to be awesome. We see the mission culture change as we're sending out 30 people to Nepal where 10 people will pour themselves out ministering the gospel to the poor, hurting, and entrapped in Kathmandu, while another 20 trek for many days up into the uh, remote, unreached villages of the Himalayas, where they will share the gospel and the love of Jesus to those who never even heard his name before. Through this church series, the Holy Spirit has led us to define why we exist and why we are justified to even be here as a church through the vision statement. The vision statement reads... We exist to make disciples in our city and of all nations who are sent out to proclaim and embody the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. 
The Holy Spirit has helped us to articulate how we will go through that with the mission statement. The mission statement reads, As redeemed followers of Jesus Christ, the members of Calvary Chapel of Crook County regularly gather under the authoritative Christ-centered word and in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we may purposefully love God and each other while boldly evangelizing the world as the truth of the gospel defines who we are and how we live. In all of this, the elders want to thank you for your patience as we've been led and perhaps seem to be wandering at times. You as a church haven't given up. It is obvious that you are listening and you are following with your lives and your time and your resources. As we have found this vision and mission statement to be at the core of the scriptures, the common thread weaved throughout the Bible, we have considered this vision to be our main aim, our target. It is ginormous, huge, and dangerous. It's costly, and it's an incredibly important purpose. In unveiling this vision, it's as if I stand here with you today as a commanding officer of an army unit who's been freshly recruited and has begun boot camp. And I'm telling you that the reason you're going through all of this training is because there is an enormous war raging and you are all being trained to be sent into the battle. You will have to sacrifice your lives and time with your families. You will need to know how to use your weapon and how to be tactical. You will need to know the man next to you is all in as you will trust him with your life. You will need to know your commanding officers and your orders and your role within your unit. The sacrifice will be great, but the reward will be awesome. We assure you that not one decision we have made is just on a whim or made out of emotion. The direction we would like to share with you today is not one that's been birthed out of some kind of hyped up event, nor has it come out of a man-made desire to place a yoke upon your neck. We believe with all of our hearts that where God is taking our church is consistent with every step he's led us in over the last 12 years. It's a path that has been on the table of discussion for nearly three years. And as month after month after year has gone by, we have understood its urgency and necessity. We have spent hours upon hours upon hours of discussion and prayer as elders. We have fasted and held this direction with open hands before God, begging God to remove it from our path and from our heart if we're out of step with him. As we go through the scriptures, we see its methodology. As we've looked at the theology of the church over the last year and a half, each aspect of ecclesiology, the studying of the church begs for this direction. As we visit other churches, we see the direction in use with effective power. And as we visit other churches that have it not, we see the detrimental effect of its lack. In light of the gospel, in light of God's overall plan and design for this church, in light of the vision that we have painted on the wall in the back, what is the next step that God is leading us in as a church? It is that we would covenant with one another to be committed members of this local church, Calvary Chapel of Crook County. We present before you today what we call covenant membership. The Calvary of Chapel of Crook County covenant membership is birthed out of our love for you, for this church body, for its individual members. 
And we hope we'll experience the fullness of joy that is found in the presence of the Lord. The primary purpose for this covenant membership is to clarify the biblical obligations and expectations for both the elders of the church and the individual members of this church. What is a covenant? Webster's tells us that it's a written agreement or promise, usually under seal between two or more parties, especially for the performance of some action. What we see on the wall, what the action is. We see in the scriptures a number of examples of covenants, some between God and man, where God has bound himself to fulfill both sides of the agreement. Other covenants are solely between men and men or men and women, including the marriage covenant, where both sides are reciprocally bound to adhere to the obligation. The covenant membership is essentially an agreement that tells everybody here who's in. It's saying, I'm in, and we're all in this together, arm in arm. I'm in, and I'm willing to be taught and admonished by you. I'm in, and I'm willing to lay down my life with you to accomplish this purpose. If it were a battle, we've been dropped into enemy territory. We are in the trenches together, and we can look at the man in the foxhole next to us and say, are you in? I know you are. I can trust you with my life. It's saying that I'm willing to trust and to help others who've also laid down their lives. This is our commitment level. Today is essentially a DTR, a define the relationship. We've all had those awkward moments, you know, where we've had, all right, so are we friends or there's something more serious going on? Do you love me? You know, that's essentially today. Today, in this season of our church, we are saying, I am done with the dating period. I am done flirting with you, Calvary Chapel of Crook County and the people in it. And I am ready to get married. It's saying, I want you to know I consider myself to be a part of this faith family. Covenant membership is saying, I believe in the truth of the doctrine laid out in the scriptures. And I will walk in submission to the leaders here. I welcome the correction from the Lord, from everyone here. I am laying down my selfish worldly rights and I will now walk in submission, mutual submission to each one of you here. If I stray, I want you and the shepherds to come after me. If I am hurting or in need, I expect you to come and to tend to me as I will to you. I will use my spiritual gifts to edify this church. I will give benevolently of my resources for the work of the ministry that happens here and for the needs of the saints here. This is my church. I am committed. I am a member of this body. I am a sheep in this flock. This is my faith family. This is my home. Now this level of covenants, this membership would not be necessary if we weren't attempting to live out the book of Acts. And if this is the vision statement of the local church, we ask, how are we to accomplish this vision? How do we accomplish our mission? And covenant membership is the method that we feel God has led to us based on what he shows us in scripture, maybe not by what is specifically commanded in scripture, but certainly by what is implied all throughout. We are to be built up into a specific body of people. And because this is the vision, we have seen that it is against our culture, both secularly and the American church culture. 
We've seen that it is against what is inside of me in my natural wants. And we see that it is hard. You wouldn't need to be a committed part of this local body if it was the direction that all of our culture was going, if it was the deepest desire of our hearts, and if it was an easy thing. One professor of theology remarked, an inactive church member is a contradiction in terms. If we do not cherish the church and view membership as a great privilege, we need to question if we are truly part of the church. We cannot expect to meet the church triumphant in glory if we are not militant on earth. Freelance or non-participatory Christianity negates the entire concept of the church as a corporate witness of redeemed fellowship. Early on in church history, in Acts chapter 4, verses 32, clear through midway of chapter uh, 5, we see the multitude of the people that were gathering, the believers, they were all together. They were of one heart, one soul. Neither did anybody say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Chapter 4 of Acts says that great grace was upon them all, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. They laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to anyone as they had need. An incredible revival happening within the church. It, there's distinctions being set. There's things being set. There's a, a local body being formed there. There are blessings that we're all receiving. I'm giving to you. You're giving to me. There's gospel-shaped community taking place. But within that group, there was some people who were pretenders. There were people who were there just for the good parts of it. There were people who were there, but they were not all in. And in this early baby form of the church, the Holy Spirit calls them out. Ananias and Sapphira, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? Why are you testing me? And he kills them. Because that is how serious being all in is. And he sets the example from the very early times of the church. And later on in chapter 5, we see so great fear came upon the church and upon all who heard these things. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. In this stage of our church's history, God is doing incredibly big things. And the Holy Spirit is leading us to say, who is in? And let the pretenders be marked. Let those who aren't all in say it so they can know, so that we can know. For those who are struggling, that this is a man-made thing and that you don't need this. We just want you to know today that Jesus nor us are putting a heavy yoke on you, but he is calling us to a purpose. We take comfort in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28, when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are laboring and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. None of us in and of ourselves have the strength or motivation to do this. If anything, the elders are bringing upon themselves much more of a workload. But we have been moved by the scriptures, by the gospel, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we trust that you will be as well. At this stage, we ask you not to worry about how this is all gonna look and how this is gonna happen. We ask you to trust him. And in humility, the elders plead with you to give the Lord a chance in this. 
to trust that the appointed elders who've been appointed by the Holy Spirit are being led by the word of God. We have for you today on our church website uh, a sample draft, and we also have in the foyer paper copies of it, a sample draft of a nearly completed covenant statement. It's been made available for you today so that you can read through it with your family, so that you can pray through it, so that you can search the scriptures. We encourage you to have your Bible with you as you look through these things to test it, see if these things are so. Over the next three weeks, we're going to work through a little bit of what this looks like, beginning with going through our statement of faith. So we can establish a clear line of doctrine that this church stands on as truth. Something that we will never waver on. Something that we will, the hill that we will die on. There's compromise in the church today. And the time is coming soon where if we stand for the truth, we're going to need to lay our lives down. We need to know, well, what are those things? What are things that we can say, hey, no big deal? Or things that will say, you can go ahead and kill me because I'm not going against it. We're going to go through this statement of faith so that you can know where the church stands on essential doctrines or things that are perhaps open-handed issues, theological distinctives that you'll hear taught, at the, you'll hear taught here at this local church. On the fourth week, we'll have copies of our final covenant document available and we will walk through this document together as a church. The Wednesday following that, we will have a Wednesday night gathering that will be a special night you can bring any questions that you might have. After you've gone through the covenant, after you've searched the scriptures, after you've looked at the scriptures that we've given you, after you've listened to the church series so that you know where we're coming from, we'll listen to your questions. We'll work through those questions. We probably had all those questions ourselves. And then we'll begin accepting covenant documents from you as a church. And we're gonna just bring this before the Lord. You know, all of these things, Week after week, you know, we've, we've pulled from the scriptures. We've seen that all of these things are just in a response to what Jesus has done for us. If you're here today and you're not even a Christian, you know, I just hope that you hear from the Lord how much he loves and he cares for his purchased possession. That he is for his bride. That he wants to protect his bride. He wants to see her to the end. I hope you see here today the, the love and the care that the elders have for you as a church, that we pray for you, that we search the word on how we can best effectively shepherd you and tend you and care for you so that we would know who are we accountable for to shepherd, Lord? I mean, we're gonna stand before you. Who, who is this group of people? As we come to the communion table today, we bring this to the Lord and we remember his covenant the covenant that was sealed in his blood, the covenant that was bought by his body. We're gonna sing a song about trusting the Lord. You know, just amazing to come to this day. This is just a pivotal moment for our church. This is like perhaps a crossroads in our church. This is a time where many of you are gonna to need to decide if this is gonna be your church home from now on out. And we understand that. We understand that people may leave. But we are so confident. This is where the Lord is leading. We just trust the Lord. We trust you, Lord. We've fasted. Fasted this week a couple different times over this Sunday. We trust the Lord. We pray that you trust the Lord too. You would trust the Lord. This is a song about trusting the Lord. And, and we're gonna partake of communion 
You can come forward as you're ready. You can take the elements. You can thank the Lord for the covenant of salvation by grace through faith. He sealed that covenant with his blood and with his body. And we can remember that today as we ponder this covenant set before us man to man before the Lord. Come as you're ready, take the elements, partake in your own time, and let's sing this as a prayer to the Lord.